three days rise again, rose from the dead in the body in which he had died, rose just as he said, rose to deathless life and is now ascended to God's right hand and as he said he would, gives his spirit to all who repent and believe. (coughs) Jesus, the risen Jesus, offers life, but we don't flock to him. We don't want to know. We look for reasons not to believe as if we want to die. Now, isn't that a puzzle? In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus encounters unbelief. And in John chapter 9, he will work a sign that exposes both the folly and guilt of unbelief. And so here in John 7 and 8, we'll learn the outcome, character and origin of our unbelief. And we'll also learn why Jesus will in the end not be limited in any way by this human refusal to believe. And God willing, as we look at these chapters tonight and next week, you will be challenged to leave your unbelief, to find life in trusting God's Son, challenged to believe and keep on believing. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. In these first two verses, John tells us two things we need to know to understand the conversation that follows in chapters 7 and 8. And the first thing is that the Jews, by whom John means the Jewish religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. This has been the case since the healing of the man on the Sabbath in John 5, as we see in John 5:18, And we are never allowed to lose sight of their desire to kill Jesus in this conversation, with its many references listed there in the outline to either seeking to seize Jesus or killing Jesus. In fact, Chapters 7 and 8 are bookended between references, to their deter- between references to the Jews' determination to kill Jesus. We've seen the one at verse 1, and then 8.59, the last verse of chapter 8, they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus himself makes it the central issue by directly challenging the Jews about it in his first conversation with them. 7.19, he asks, why do you seek to kill me? Such a good question, isn't it? Why, why would you want to kill the author of life? In many ways, this introductory verse does not just give the context of the conversation, it highlights the issue in our unbelief. For this determination to kill is the inevitable outcome of unbelief and highlights both its horror and tragedy. It's horror for Jesus is good, thoroughly good. There's not a shadow of wickedness or evil in him. He is true, he is kind, he does good. Oh, and the tragedy of unbelief. For this is seeking to kill life. For Jesus is the one who is life. He is the word become flesh. The one through whom creation, life, comes into being. In whom is life and that life is the light of humanity. This unbelief is seeking to extinguish the life which is our life and light to make death and darkness prevail. And seeking to kill 
Jesus. This horror and tragedy is the inevitable result of unbelief. You see, unbelief, refusing to believe Jesus, is not neutral. It is not just indifference. In the end, it is rejection, and it will be violent rejection. For the claim of God on the lives of his creatures is insistent. The claims of his son Jesus to rule are always there, for he is always there, in our conscience, in his creation, at the end. You see, these Jewish officials are not especially bad. They are, in fact, good people, moral in the main, people concerned for their national life, who are in Jesus confronted with the presence of their creator, with his insistent truthfulness, his insistent righteousness, his insistent love, his insistent expectation that he be believed. His presence itself, his existence, challenges our lives, exposes our selfishness, threatens our determination to be the rulers of our own life. And you might be sitting here tonight thinking that you are a good person. But recognise that the response of these Jewish leaders will, in the end, be your response if you will not believe Jesus. Because in the end, you will do whatever it takes to get him and his insistent claims out of your life. Why do you seek to kill me? Is a question not just for the Jewish leaders, but for our race and for you, if you are not believing. The second piece of essential information in verses 1 and 2 is that the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. We're reminded of this throughout chapter 7 and the references again are in the handout. As we see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Feast of Booze was the third of the three great feasts in the Jewish calendar where every Jewish man was to appear before the Lord. It celebrated the end of the harvest. It was a festival that was to be marked with joy as they celebrated the blessing of God in the fruit of the land. It was also a festival at which they remembered by living in these booths, these temporary shelters, how the Lord had brought them through the wilderness at the time of the Exodus to the promised land, reinforcing that the Lord was the provider of this permanent home and all the good they now enjoyed. In Jesus' time, we learn from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, and rabbinic sources that the celebration of the Feast of Booths was associated with water and light, the blessing of God in providing life-giving water, in giving the rains and bringing water from the rock in the wilderness, was remembered in a daily water-pouring ceremony when the priests would carry water through the streets of Jerusalem in a golden pitcher and then pour it out at the altar in the temple. And the light of the pillar of fire that provided guidance and protection in the wilderness was remembered at that time in lighting giant lamps in the temple courts during the night of the feast. At this festival that rejoiced in the life given and sustained by God, unbelief threatens death. And at this festival, Jesus promises himself as the source of the life-giving water and light of God. He promises the life, 
that will never run out and the light that will always guide and protect, the light and life. Well, the first encounter Jesus has with unbelief in these chapters is with the unbelief in his own family. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now his brothers don't doubt that Jesus is doing mighty works. They're in fact advising him where he should do them. What they don't believe is what Jesus has said about himself and the purpose of his coming, that he has come to give life to the world. Like the crowd we met in John 6, they think Jesus should be gathering a popular following by doing mighty works, getting power and influence in the world. In his response, Jesus makes clear he does not take direction from them. He has a work to do that is given him by his Father, that will happen at the time set by the Father. They have no such work, no set time, so the timing of their actions is indifferent. It can happen at any time. And their actions, verse 7, won't expose them to the world's hatred, the world understood as humanity, organised in its rebellion to God. It won't expose them to the world's hatred, for they still belong to the world. But Jesus, coming from the Father and doing the Father's will, is not of the world and his words and actions show that the world's rebellion against God is evil. His coming shows that people love darkness rather than light and that they hate the exposure he brings. Jesus will not take direction from his brothers or join himself to them. He will not go up to the feast with them and so, verse 9, he stays in Galilee when they leave. But later, verse 10, at his time, he goes up. Now, there was no deception. He said he was not going up, and he didn't go up. And when he goes up, he goes not just at a different time, but in a different manner, in private, not publicly, and for a different purpose. As we'll see, verse 14, he teaches. He doesn't do spectacular works to attract the crowd. That is, Jesus goes up in obedience to the Father, not to meet human expectations. And what he encounters in the temple, the feast, is unbelief. Either the determined unbelief of the Jews, who include the Pharisees and the temple authorities, or the confused unbelief of the crowds, whether that's the pilgrims who went up to the feast or the Jerusalem locals. And in this encounter with unbelief, Jesus exposes the character of unbelief, theirs and ours. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marvelled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now you might at first think that the marvelling at his teaching by the Jews showed some kind of softening of their attitude, a kind of grudging respect. Not so. They're actually damning with faint praise. They say Jesus' teaching is just basic. The word they use is grammatica. It just means the letter, the ABCs. Just beginning stuff. Mind you, they add, it's a wonder he can even produce that, seeing that he is untaught. That is, he's not someone who's learnt at the feet 
of our recognised teachers. But Jesus uses their comment as an opportunity to engage them and show the origin of their failure to believe in him. In dismissing and demeaning his teaching, verse 16, they are dismissing and demeaning God for his teaching is from the Father who sent him. If, verse 17, their will was to do God's will, they would have recognised that, that his teaching comes with God's authority because he seeks the Father's glory. That is, he is a faithful messenger seeking to fulfil the purpose for which the Father has sent him into the world and so bring praise to the Father. And because he is a faithful messenger who seeks the Father's glory, his teaching is completely true and reliable. It is God's word. But here is the problem. Verse 19. You see, they don't seek to do the Father's will. They have Moses' law given by God, but, says Jesus, none of them does God's law. They show by their actions that they are not those whose will is to do God's will. The problem they have with Jesus and his teaching this murderous rejection of unbelief is a problem they have with God. It's a problem of the heart, of not wanting in their hearts to trust and obey God, not wanting to confess him as their Lord, as their rightful ruler, and to show that by doing his will in obeying the law. Now what Jesus says is pretty confronting for those Jews. You see, they were claiming they opposed Jesus, wanted to kill Jesus because of their loyalty to God, their obedience to God. But Jesus says, think again, why do you seek to kill me? Think again. He says that to you and I. Now you might give reasons for not believing, not listening to Jesus. But think, is it fundamentally a problem of the heart? of your not wanting God to be God, of your not wanting to acknowledge his right as your creator to rule your life, to tell you how to live, and so not wanting to receive his word by listening to his son. The crowd, here pilgrims from outside Jerusalem, distinguished from the people we'll meet in verse 25, being less informed about the Jewish officials' intent, are shocked by Jesus bringing that intent out into the open. You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They can't believe it. They say to Jesus, you're just paranoid. But Jesus responds in verse 21 and to 24 by continuing to engage not just them, but the Jews. In verse 21, he refers back to the healing in John 5, done in Jerusalem. He's not saying that he has done only one work, but that this is the one they have fixed on to justify their unbelief. And he says to them, let's think about your use of that healing to condemn me. And here Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. So he says, you all insist a boy is to be circumcised on the eighth day, whether or not that day is a Sabbath, and you insist on that to keep the law of Moses, which commanded a boy be circumcised on the eighth day, even though circumcision is older than Moses, coming from Abraham. So he says, 
you admit there is a kind of hierarchy in keeping the law, that there is an obedience which is more important than keeping the Sabbath. And being circumcised was seen as being more important, more important because it was older and fundamental to belonging to the people of God. Bringing someone into the covenant, circumcision was seen as a kind of perfecting rite, a making of the boy whole, fit to belong, and a sign of the blessing of relationship with God. So, says Jesus, if there is an obedience more important than keeping the Sabbath, which you admit, why can't you recognise that making a whole man whole, fit, healthy, is part of that more important obedience. That wholeness is more important than circumcision because it's actually more fundamental to enjoying the blessing of God, to participating in the life of God's people. And so he concludes, verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgments. That is, judgments in line with God's created character. Think when you come to judge of what is pleasing to him, not just how things might seem to you. He's saying to them and to us that in our unbelief we should stop looking for a quick way to dismiss Jesus without grappling with God's reality. And so do you rely on superficial judgments to avoid thinking about God and who he is and what pleases him, to avoid thinking about whether Jesus is the truth from God? There are lots of superficial religious judgments around. Oh, God can't have a son. Well, no, you should think some more because if God is all alone, how can he be loved? Oh, one person can't die for others. But hang on, can't God himself, who's the offended one, pay the cost of forgiving? Oh, and there are superficial judgments used by the non-religious. Here's one. All religions are the same. And so, because they're all the same, you can dismiss thinking about Jesus. Well, again, you need to think. If you think that sharing some common features makes things the same... Well, you ought to think again, especially, say, if you're going to buy a car. I mean, a car without an engine and a car with an engine have a lot of common features. You know, you can sit in, turn the steering wheel, you know, fiddle with the dial, you have lots of features. But they are infinitely different in terms of getting you to your destination. Here's another one, superficial judgment. All Christians are hypocrites. Have you met all Christians? And how does their behaviour affect the truth of the gospel? Unbelief, a problem of the heart, supported by superficial, dismissive judgments. And unbelief is so often confident in what it thinks it knows. The locals, the people of Jerusalem, are a bit more in touch with what the Jewish authorities intend to do. And so they start, verse 26, to wonder about Jesus, wonder if official inaction means the authorities really know Jesus is the Christ. But they dismiss the idea that Jesus could be the Christ. Why? 
Well, there was a belief that the Christ would appear suddenly without any build-up, any previous activity. But Jesus was well known. He'd been active for a while and they were even discussing him so he couldn't be the Christ. Jesus' response is that they did not know as much as they thought they did. You know me, he says, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He repeats their claim. But then he reminds them of something that he has often said by now in the gospel that should have led them to question what they know. He's reminded them that he is someone who is sent. And so the only way to truly know him and know where he has come from is to know the one who sent him. And in their unbelief and sin, <coughs> they do not know him. They don't know the Father. But Jesus knows him. And so Jesus is the one who should be listened to about his identity and purpose, about who he is and what he has come to do. But they don't believe because they think the little they know is all there is to know. And so they've stopped listening. It's like us. We think we know. We make our partial and limited knowledge for all there is to know. And we draw conclusions that bolster the unbelief our hearts desire. Thinking the little we know is all there is to know, we're quite happy then to tell God what he can and can't do, what he can and can't expect of us. But we should listen to Jesus and think that maybe... We don't know what we think we do know. Well, Jesus' response causes a disturbance. The attempt to arrest him fails because Jesus' time is set by the Father. But the disturbance comes to the attention of the temple authorities, the Jewish officials. And they send some of the temple police to arrest Jesus and Jesus' response shows not only that he's in control of his coming and going, but that those who want to judge Jesus do not have a clue about who Jesus is and his purpose in coming, that they're operating on an entirely different plane. Verse 33, Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, Jesus speaks in this way repeatedly in the Gospels. He is speaking of his work, his death and rising and ascending to the Father. His movement is subject to God, already planned by God. He's not subject to them and he is beyond them and their possibility. But the authorities don't have a clue. They say to one another, verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They wonder where Jesus could go beyond their reach, the Greeks. They are clueless. And that shouldn't surprise us, really, should it? God is so much greater than us. His plans and possibilities so far beyond us. But all the time, unbelief makes what we think is possible the limits of God's possibilities. All the time, unbelief shrinks God to fit our small understanding. And so often the God we are not believing in is actually an idol of our imagination made and then so easily dismissed 
because he's not greater than ourselves. An idol of our imagination because we refuse to come to God and be taught by God. And so we're not looking for the true God for whom all things are possible. And so often the Jesus we are not believing in is some pale shadow of the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, a limited first century man and not the eternal son become flesh who knows who he is and who knows why he has come and who tells us that. Unbelief issuing from our hearts, content with superficial judgments, overconfident in its knowledge, failing to reckon with the difference between us and God. Thankfully, Jesus is not deterred from doing the will of God, pursuing the work the Father has given him by our unbelief. At the Feast of the Tabernacles, as I've said, they were celebrating God's provision for the continuation of life in the water he provided, the water from the rock in the wilderness, the water from the sky year after year in the land. But the life that water gives runs out. We know that. It leaves us thirsty for life, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for a love that will not fail us, thirsty from grief and loss and weariness. Jesus says, he is the fulfilment of what the Feast of Booths pointed to, what the provision of water in the wilderness pointed to. See, they both pointed to God as the source of life. But they point beyond this life because God has a life which is inexhaustible, a life that he can share, the life of the age to come lived in his presence in the new heaven and earth. Jesus says he brings that life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says he will give that life to all who come to him. It will never run out, a life within us that will never run dry. And verse 39 makes clear that under the picture of water, Jesus is speaking of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Jesus gives believers the life of the life-giving Spirit promised in the Old Testament. The Spirit, who in pictures drawn from Isaiah, turns the barren wilderness into a fertile garden. Oh, the Spirit, whom we read of in Ezekiel 37, who returns life, to dead bones. But the promise precedes the provision. Verse 39. This he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The coming of the Spirit to those who believe in Jesus, to each one who believes in Jesus, must wait until Jesus is glorified. In John's Gospel, Jesus' glorification is his crucifixion, resurrection and return to the Father. The coming of the Spirit to Jesus' people depends on the successful completion of his work, the work of his hour, as he describes it in John 12. He must go, John 16, before that Spirit can come, and it must be so. 
You see, Jesus has testified that the works of the world are evil, that our rejecting God, our excluding of our creator God is sin that leads to more sin, the grief our selfish actions and unkind words bring on the world, sin that deserves judgment, sin that excludes us from the holy God's presence. And we ought to think, how can we live at peace with the just God who is rightly angry with our sin? How could the spirit of the holy God ever make his home with us, ever give us his life, people whose sin has made us unclean, unfit for the presence of God? There's only one way, isn't there? Our sin must be taken away. And Jesus says he is the Lamb of God sent into the world to take away the sin of the world. We must be cleansed. And only the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins can cleanse us from our sin, can make us holy. Only Jesus, by his death, can make us fit for the Spirit, make us those who can know the inexhaustible life of God within us. Jesus promises the Spirit. And Jesus makes the coming of the Spirit possible by his glorification, his death for our sin, his rising, his returning to the Father. Now, as you think about that, think how great our God is, how great the salvation he brings through Jesus, the salvation here he promises in the midst of human unbelief. Here is promised inexhaustible life that will come through the death of the one who has life in himself. Here he speaks of the glorification of the Son, which will actually come through the rejection of his people. We will come to know the vindication of Jesus' truth and trustworthiness through this same murderous unbelief that Jesus confronts here. Well, Jesus' words create a stir. Some of the people are moved to want to recognise in Jesus one sent from God, the prophet, like Moses or the Christ. Others find reasons not to believe. The crowd can't make up its mind. There's debate, division, but no belief. And Jesus' words impressed those sent to arrest him. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. But despite the testimony of their own, this appeal to listen, the Jewish officials are unmoved and these champions of the law continue lawless. When Nicodemus, verse 51, raises the standards of the law that must be met before someone is condemned, they dismiss him as a Galilean, a partisan provincial. They confirm Jesus' observation. None of you keeps the law, though they say they are God's people. It's a puzzle, isn't it? Why this determined unbelief? Why this blindness to their own hypocrisy? Why this determination to kill Jesus? Now, Jesus will give us the full answer for that in chapter 8. There he will bring us face to face with the depth of our unbelief, the depth of our problem in believing and welcoming God. 
But for now, hear Jesus. Jesus offers life, eternal life. And that is a sure promise because Jesus is now glorified. He is risen. He does reign at the Father's right hand. He gives his spirit, as all those who trust Jesus know. So if you do not yet believe in Jesus for life, will you tonight recognise and abandon your unbelief and come to Jesus for life? Do you see in yourself a determination to not acknowledge the rule of God over your life, which up to now has made you determined not to really engage with Jesus? Oh, do you see in yourself distorted and superficial judgments because you have just wanted to dismiss Jesus? Could you, do you think, be too confident in what you claim to know? And do you see that there is really so much more to know and Jesus, come from God, knows that, knows the truth and should be believed. Is it time to change your mind and seek a changed and new heart from Jesus? And as you think about that, do you recognise where persisting in your unbelief will bring you? Now you may not think it. It will bring you to killing Jesus who is wholly good. Isn't that a horror? It will bring you to embracing endless death in rejecting the God who is life. And isn't that tragic? Let him, says Jesus, who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus is calling you to come, to come and find life. So call out to him for the life he promises to give. He hears, he lives. And then come and talk. And if you're a believer, well, hopefully you haven't thought that this talk has all been about somebody else because the scripture has been given for your instruction and encouragement as well. So do you recognise the persistence of unbelief even in your believing? Do you recognise in yourself that not wanting to hear because you don't want to change to do God's will where it conflicts with your desire, whether it's for money or recognition or sexual satisfaction, not wanting to hear because you don't want to have to think of God in ways that will separate you from your peers or family. Do you recognise that wanting to make yourself and what you want and think you can do be the measure of what God can be? and expect of your obedience? Do you see yourself taking refuge in a superficial engagement with God, fearful that he might want more, more of your love or your time or your life? Unless rooted out, such quiet, lazy unbelief will bring you to a point where you will want to stop listening to Jesus. For Jesus will not step back from being the eternal son, the judge and saviour of the world, the only way to God. Jesus will not step back from calling for all your love and all your trust. He will be satisfied with nothing less. So get rid of unbelief. Know Jesus in knowing his word. Know 
how great and glorious he is. The eternal word, the eternal son sent from the father. Know he can be trusted in all he says and in all he has taught his apostles to teach us. And yes, know the living water he offers to all who believe in him, not as a prize, but as a gift, the gift of life, eternal life. Trust in him wholly. Embrace the life he alone offers. Live that life for him to the praise of this rejected but reigning Saviour. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hear Jesus' call to the thirsty. Know our thirst and come to him for life. Amen.